Welcome to Hunting Fatherhood. I'm Brandon Scully. I interview people who are passionate about hunting and fishing to explore the ways nature nurtures our relationships with those who share it with. I can't wait to share their stories with you. Stick around. Joining me today is Ryan Kirby. Ryan is a celebrated wildlife artist who lives in Boone, North Carolina. His art has raised more than a million dollars for wildlife conservation, which holds a special place in his heart. Listeners will be familiar with his work for the Quality Deer Management Association, the National Wild Turkey Federation, and the Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation. Ryan has also been featured in magazines like Outdoor Life and Garden and Gun. He's a hunter, a father, a husband, and honestly, I got really lucky to have him on the show. Ryan, welcome to Hunting Fatherhood. Hey, man. It's great to be here. I appreciate you having me. I'm, I'm real happy to have you. Uh, the first question I know that everybody wants the answer to, myself in, included, is wh- why did you agree to talk to me? I called call you uh, out of the blue uh, with this idea for a podcast, and you said yes, and I wasn't expecting that. Yeah. Well, I mean, I've done a, a, a several podcasts before. Um, I enjoy them. You, you get to meet uh, a lot of great people, a lot of... Uh, uh, sharp, you know, intelligent people that are, that are talking about relevant things and, 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 you know, wanting to grow and learn. And I'm kind of a self-improvement junkie myself. Um, I love being a dad. Um, you know, I, I, fatherhood, you know, having a father and, and being a father has played an important part of my life and hunting has been a constant through that. So there were just a lot of, um, a lot of interesting things that I found about uh, your podcast and, and what you got going on, and and we're just thankful to be a part of it. Great, I'm I'm seriously honored that you came on, so thank you. And I want to give you just a little bit of context on how you came into my radar. So um, I was putting this concept together for this podcast, and I wanted to get the ball rolling in early 2021. I live in Charleston, and we have Seawee, the Southeastern Wildlife Exposition, and that's in early February. We're launching this year uh, some web content, huntingfatherhood.com is, is tied to coincide with that. So I'm, I was browsing the Seawee archives for inspiration, and your work is the first that really caught my eye. Uh, and I could tell that whoever Ryan Kirby was, because I don't, I don't know who you were, you had to be a hunter, right? But your Seawee bio just says that you like to paint and listen to country music, right? So... <laughs> I find myself on your website, ryankirbyart.com, and I'm and I find the growth and maturity of the white-tailed buck. And just this light bulb comes on because I am a novice hunter. I started uh, hunting in the fall of 2017, uh, and I have been studying this print over at QDMA for about a year mm-hmm. since I'm still working on taking my first deer. Right? It's beautiful. It's useful, but it didn't until then dawn on me that a 30 something year old guy with a life story that enjoys hunting painted it. Right. Mm -hmm. So from there, I just, I just had to hear the story of how you got to be a famous artist. So let's, (laughs) let's start with that. Tell me what work are you proudest of? Well, if you want to know the full story, it, it uh, we probably have to have an audio book format instead of a podcast. But we, I'll talk a little bit about that. But the the work that I'm honestly most proud of is is that print right there. Um, 
I feel like, you know, my job as an artist, as a wildlife artist, is to bring the outdoors indoors and to help people celebrate the the things that they love about the outdoors and the traditions and the the culture of the outdoors to bring that indoors into a format that 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 they can enjoy in their home, share with other people, put in an office or a hunt camp, especially a hunt camp. I I love that vibe. I love that atmosphere. And the 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 growth and maturity of the whitetail buck is a print. And, you know, you were talking about when you started your podcast, you just kind of take a shot at things and hope it works out. Well, as an artist, you do a lot of the same thing. And I was at I was working with a, a company that licenses my artwork. And we were at the High Point Furniture Show this year or actually it was two years ago. And I remember seeing a, a chart and I think it might have been like butterflies of North America or something random. It was a random piece of wall art. And I thought, man, it'd be so cool to do the waterfowl, to do like a, a similar print and kind of a vintage style with waterfowl. <clears throat> and so I spent about three months sketching every every species of North American waterfowl. We laid out the print, went to press, and I thought it was going to be the biggest hit. But I started uh, talking with a guy that worked for me at the time, Austin, and I was like, man, I, I think we could take this and then do something cool as well for whitetail deer. Um, and then we thought, well, there's so many, you know, aging charts out there with QDMA, but they all work from reference photos. And it's really hard to get an apples to apples comparison of a single buck. You know, they're they're taking different photos of different deer and trying to mix and match them. And, and I thought, man, if we did a piece of art that, that, really gets in depth here and, 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 and shows the, the QDM model in a, in a really artful, crafty vintage way. Um, I think we might be able to pull that off too. So the thing that I thought was going to be a success was just a mediocre success. The thing that I thought we could take a chance on and see if it worked, turn out to be the most popular piece we've ever done. So, um, that's rewarding for me. And I'm, I'm pretty proud of that one. Um, not only from the risk and in, in doing it, you know, I mean, it takes 250, 300 hours. I think I put into that one and, you know, 15, $20,000 of my own money. Uh, you know, that's a pretty big risk to put that out there and know that it could potentially flop. And it's been a really successful piece. And more importantly, it's resonated with people and it's, it's given people a conversation piece uh, something they're proud of, something that works in almost any sort of a home decor style. And so I think that's the most, the, the, the art piece that I'm most proud of. Well, like I said, I, I love it. I think it's great. And, um, I'm looking to put one on my wall eventually here. We're in the process of moving, but, oh yeah, um, when I have a study with some space, <laughs> I plan on getting one up there. So, but it's obvious from, you know, your interpretation of what a white tailed deer looks like that you've, spent a lot of time staring at them. Right. And, you know, so how, when did you start hunting? Well, I actually grew up in, in Western Illinois. Um, my dad was a farmer. Uh, he farmed full time when I was a kid, he farmed full time and then drove a, a ready mix concrete truck in the summers and the off times. Um, we had some cattle, uh, you know, 20, 25 head of cattle was probably the most I remember growing up when I was younger, we had pigs when I was real young. Um, 
And my mom was the postmaster of our little town. We had uh, 3,300 people in my hometown. So it was a real small town. Um, and so I was one of the, the, the lucky beneficiaries to grow up on a farm. And we had 120-ish, 125 acres at that, at that point when I was growing up. And in those days early on, you know, this was before leases and, and, you know, before a lot of, uh, uh, it was a lot of outfitting before deer hunting really got popular in that golden triangle area that they talk about in Illinois. We had a lot of permission hunt hunting too. You know, I mean, people, you knew a neighbor and they'd let you hunt on their property. Um, so not only did we have 125 acres or so, we had a lot more that we could hunt with friends and, and, and family. Um, so it was me and my brother. I have a younger brother who uh, lives in Kansas city with his family, his wife and kids. And between the two of us, we started tagging along at a really young age. You know, we were tagging along at five or six. I think we were 10 or 11 before we actually carried a gun. Um, and you know, from day one, my life was, was, on the farm. We had livestock, we deer hunted, we fished, we had three ponds on the farm. So I was really fortunate to, um, to grow up in that environment. We just had a great environment to just from the get go, our life was outdoors. And that's something that really has never changed throughout my life. Uh, in college, there were a few years where I didn't, I didn't hunt or fish as much as I would have liked, but from day one, I was all about the outdoors and I, I just loved it. And so a lot of that shaped my, my, my work. You know, um, I tell people all the time, I work from a lot of reference photography uh, and, and animals take bad photos just like people do. So they, they take, they, they pose in weird positions. Their leg is out of place an ear looks funny and if all you do is replicate a, a photo, <clears throat> you'll never quite get that. But a diehard hunter will know like ah, that, that ear just doesn't look quite right or nah, that, that back leg just is a little funky. And so one rule that I set for myself when I started out is that I would never paint an animal that I hadn't hunted. And so, you know, for the most part, I've stuck to that because I want to know the terrain, the habitats. I want to see that animal in person. I want to know how they act, how they react. And because I want to be able to fill in the gaps that a reference photo might leave. Uh, I want to know if that leg is funky and then I want to paint it right, not just do exactly like the reference photo does. So I've really spent most of my life studying wildlife, um, hunting, fishing, all that. And I, and I feel fortunate that I was able to do that. I was in, I, that's nothing of my own. I was just born into that. You know, I mean, that was just the the family that I was born into lived out in the country. Cool. You know, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the first, the first one I think that resonates with me is, you know, my wife, I told you we're looking to move. My wife and I mm-hmm. have this kind of debate. Um, she wants us to be more in a subdivision or like a neighborhood because she wants to have access to other kids and, you know, the resources that come along with that for our son, he's three. Yeah. And I want to move on to, you know, 
I, I tell her between 50 and 200 acres yeah. of nowhere so that we can have a homestead and, you know, do all this stuff. And, you know, and she's like, well, don't you think that that would be bad, you know, for Slater? And I, and I say, well, would it, you know, because there's so many opportunities that you miss out on uh, growing up in the suburbs that you, you know, there's a diminishing amount of like open space, right. In, yep. in this country. And that's, it, I grew up on, you know, in New York and the, uh, east of the Mississippi River, and so maybe there's more space out west or the Midwest or whatever. But you know, in my experience, a farm is you know uh, not a terrible place to spend a lot of time. Um, the other the other thing that I want to unpack there is the range that you left, like anywhere between fifty and two hundred. You know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Yeah, well, because I don't think I could probably afford more, and if I could, you know, it's not something you could actually farm. There's some room. There's plenty of room for her to compromise with you on that. Right. I'm not nothing unreasonable. <laughs> Um, you know, and the other thing I want to unpack there is you said you tagged along. I'm assuming you tagged along with your dad. So how did, how did you get, how did you get started? Did your dad say, Hey, I want you to come hunt with me. Or did he, you know, put a gun in your hand and say, you know, shoot this deer. Like, how did it work for you? You know, man, it, it was, um, there's two points I want to make. I'll kind of tell you the whole story of how it, how it happened. Um, but really my, my great grandpa, my grandpa, my dad and my uncle all farmed. So my brother and I were the first guys to go to college out of out of all my family. And honestly, we all lived within two miles of each other. So it was one of those deals where, you know, they were raised in a section and they might have bought a farm, you know, two miles over. But uh, the whole family was there. So not it wasn't just my dad. It was my uncle. It was my grandpa. Um, I, I My great grandpa wasn't alive during my lifetime a lot. Um, so I don't remember him as much. But, you know, I, I just have a, a ton of it, it's just what we did. You know, I mean, it, it it wasn't anything we did intentionally. It's back in those days, farmers farmed and then during deer season, they just deer hunted. And in those days too, it was a lot different. It, it wasn't like it is now. There there was no QDMA. There was no QDM. It was during gun season, we got together. Um, you know, we, we did man drives. So we would, we would push woodlots and ditches and stuff. Um, and it, it was really a, a community thing. You know, you would hunt with your your grandpa, dad, uncle in the morning. And then we would all get together and we'd do these drives in groups of 15 or 20 guys. And then you'd go sit in the evenings with, you know, your dad or whoever. And, you know, a lot of that, it was very active, you know, like if, if, if your dad was, was do, uh, uh, one of the drivers on a drive, you could walk along with him, you know, and a, a six-year-old can do that. You know, there wasn't any pressure to carry a gun. You just, you just were sort of rolled into the, the, the world of your dad real early. You know, I remember, I remember taking naps in the, the cab of a tractor, you know, while he was plowing fields and stuff or, or the the thing that I, I remember too, is I would sit on the, the, like the wheel covering, like the wheel well of an open cab tractor holding on by my hands while he would mow when we were bailing hay. And, you know, it's kind of just like, I mean, I hate to put it this way, but it was like bringing your dog along. Like, 
you know, he just load us up and we'd go. I remember going to cattle sales with my grandpa and my dad. And, um, it, it really wasn't this, um, intentional. Well, I, I shouldn't say that it, it didn't seem intentional They they might've been very intentional about it, but it wasn't this intentional strategic thing. It was just kind of like, Hey boy, load up and let's go, you know? And then as we, as we got older, uh, bow hunting became popular about the time I was 12. And so my dad and I actually bought a bow together and learned to shoot a bow together. So, um, he'd never had one. Uh, I'd never had one obviously. So, um, we learned to bow hunt together. We learned to turkey hunt together. The only thing that, that we ever did before I could carry a gun was shotgun deer hunt. So we learned a lot of that stuff together and, um, it was really just more of, of that was, that was how life worked when, when you were that age and when you were a kid growing up on the farm. And, you know, one of the things that somebody, uh, mentioned to me, um, about a year ago, they, they'd seen a, a, a bear hunt on social media. Somebody had posted it and they didn't understand. It, it was pretty violent. You know, it was pretty, uh, they were, they were letting the, the dog, um, get the bear after they'd killed the bear. And they didn't realize that that was the dog's reward for hunting the bear is being able to chew on him a little bit. And that's just kind of what it was. And I was explaining to the person, like, if, if you grew up in the context of this, you would understand it, but to see it from, with no context, it's completely foreign. It looks gruesome. It is kind of, it's kind of, kind of rough. But, you know, back in those days, without social media, if you were looking at something, you had context around it because you were there. It was part of your world. You know, like I couldn't I couldn't look at a at a, at a bear hunt and have no idea what was going on because um, social media didn't exist. Like if I was watching it, we didn't even have cell phones back then. So if I was watching a, a deer being shot, I had the context. I had the full story a full context around it. And I guess that's one way to explain it is that um, it, it was really just part of who we were, you know, and that's about the the best way I can explain it. Um, I remember you could even take your, your <laughs> shotgun deer tags. So the shotgun season was three days and you could take your gun tag into the principal's office and get an excused absence for the first day of gun season. So that definitely didn't happen anymore. <laughs> I like that. You know, it, it's kind of funny what you said there because um, as, a, as a newer hunter with no, I'll call them uh, ingrained bad habits, uh, I, I basically I, I see a problem, you know, and I'm and I just I approach it in a way that makes sense to solve it. Right? You know, I, I the other day I was um, not the other day, but you know, I, I started out hunting public land and I didn't have a, a tree stand, you know, you don't put a tree stand up on public land, mm -hmm. you know, and I'm like, well, I'm doing, I'm walking six to 10 miles a day and I don't want to carry a big deer stand. So I got into, you know, saddle hunting, which is, yeah. um, it's a much lighter, faster way to do it. But, you know, I, I grew up, um, climbing, you know, indoor rock climbing gyms, right. In the, in the nineties. And so it's just something, you know, that, uh, that it fits into my skill set. I'm comfortable climbing a tree in a harness, right? So instead of going out and buying a tree stand, I bought a saddle harness. And that's kind of like now it seems like it's kind of becoming more popular, but it's not how it's always been done. 
Um, and, but I don't have any of that inertia to overcome because I don't, you know, I don't have anything in the background saying, no, this is how you hunt. So I'm, yeah. that resonates with me. Um, so I guess I'm interested to know then has, how is your relationship with your dad? Are you guys still participating in these, you know, man drives and, you know, are you, do you have like a tradition? Do you go every, every year to do one of these? Or are you like old washerwomen when you get there and you nag and bicker with each other or <laughs> How does it work between you? Oh, man. Well, first of all, the, the the man drives are a thing of the past. Um, you know, when uh, when bow hunting became popular and people started letting deer walk, you know, it was it's kind of funny. I'm sitting down here. It used to be my old office and I had a, uh, a little board with some old deer hunting photos uh, from my grandpa, my dad and. Um, I was just kind of looking through some stuff before we got online just to look and reminisce. And the, the thing, the crazy thing, and it was kind of fun, man, and, and kind of innocent. And I, I wish we could go back to these days, but a lot of times people just almost get in fist fights over the age of a deer. And, you know, so-and-so shot one that wasn't mature enough yet and all that kind of stuff. And man, back in those days, you just shot whatever ran out, <laughs> you know, and I'm looking, I'm looking at a photo of me with a, uh, if you can see that there's like a, he might be a six pointer. I'm not even okay. sure. And I was a junior in high school then. And man, it was more like, Hey, did you get your buck? Yeah, I got my buck. What'd you get? Oh, he's a four pointer. What'd you get? Oh, he was an eight, you know, he was a 10 and it's all it. You just, you got your buck. And it was it was uh, more of a surprise. There were no trail cameras, none of that kind of stuff. So it was a lot different then. So nobody really does the man drives anymore. A lot of people are are more interested in in bow hunting and stand hunting. So we really don't have as many traditions like that as we used to. Um, as I get older, I'd love to start bringing them back. I'd love to take Rhett, our four year old boy, back to mom and dad's place and and show him how we used to hunt, you know, and, and do some old school stuff like that. I do try to make it back every, uh, for about two weeks, every November. And I've bought a couple, uh, 40 acre tracks in my home County there. And me and some buddies, we go and stay with my parents and, and, and we'll deer hunt. Um, that's about the closest thing to a tradition that we've got. You know, my dad and I, my dad, um, my dad always made an effort to be there as far as, you know, my dad was just kind of an old farmer, you know, that's just how he was. And, um, I end up, the older I get, the more I end up, you know, just finding myself acting like him and saying the things that he say, you know, uh, getting frustrated over the same things that he got frustrated over. Um, but you know, one thing about my dad is he was always there my mom and dad never missed a football or basketball game. Um, they, they always would include us, you know, and, and again, it was a lot of farm life. So it was easy to include us. You know, it's not like, it's not like dad put on a suit and tie and left for eight hours and then came back eight hours later. He was doing things that, that I could participate in. So there was a lot of, uh, a lot of time spent there together. Um, you know, I'm not going to say we, we had plenty of our issues um, when I was in college and, and, and high school, you know, and I was I went through your typical, you know, punk high school days and all that. But 
my dad and I's relationship now is great. Um, one of the things that, that changed, I feel like is that, um, I just learned to, I learned he's just, he's, he's just a man, you know, like, um, he, he's got frustrations and faults and, and, you know, good qualities and bad qualities, just like we all do. And I think once I started to see my dad in that light, um, I was able to appreciate a lot more of the good stuff and, um, you know, appreciate all the sacrifices he made for my brother and I, um, all the things that they did do right versus what they didn't do. And um, so we've got a great relationship now. They drove down here to Boone, North Carolina, and then him and I turned around and drove back home to deer hunt for a couple of weeks. <clears throat> and um, and it was great, man. I mean, we, we kind of had a bachelor weekend. It was either me and him or me and him and a couple of my buddies at the house. And my mom made frozen meals because she didn't have any faith that we could you know, survive without her. Um, but, uh, no, it was great. We had a great time and, and, um, a really, um, becoming a father is eye opening too, because, um, you know, when you look back on it, all you really see are like the times they took you squirrel hunting when you were 12 or when you killed your first deer or little league games or fishing, but you don't realize like, God, these people wipe my butt for two years, three years, <laughs> you know, like right. you don't realize, man, they, they woke up and fed me when I was seven months old and I was screaming, you know, like, man, it's a grind. And and there's a lot of stuff you got to do and a lot of sacrifices you've got to make that as you, until you do it for your own kid, you don't realize what it's like. And it, it, it opens your eyes a lot and it humbles you a lot. It did me anyway. So for sure. The second thing that you said was about putting on a coat and tie, um, which for me, I, I don't put on a coat and tie, but I do try to go to the office, you know, eight hours a day or whatever. Um, although now it's, it's the home office cause COVID, uh, you know, and it, and it breaks my heart every time I come down for lunch or whatever. And my son is like, daddy, do you want to play with me? And I'm like, yes, I do want to play with you, but also I, <laughs> I have to get yeah. back to work, you know? And so that, that's the sacrifice that you talk about. And, and, um, you know, and it, and it frustrates me and my wife is always telling me, you know, she is, she, he is going to learn that, you know, his, his dad cared enough about him that, he went and he worked eight hours a day, even though he could be playing Legos or whatever, yeah. um, you know, and, and so that you really spoke to that and I appreciate it. Um, and, you know, and the third thing that you talked about there is you and your dad going to deer camp with your buddies and it was like college, you know, uh, roommates or whatever, um, hanging out is deer deer. It seems like deer is a, um, is a central part of how you came up in hunting. Is that, is that your favorite animal to hunt? Oh yeah. 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 Deer. I, man, I, I really started enjoying turkey hunting the past 10 years or so. Um, and again, you know, my dad and I, we learned together. So, uh, he, the first turkey, I believe if I'm remember this right, the first turkey he ever killed was a Jake and we didn't know any different. So we went back and just built a homemade blind inside of a brush pile and we just waited, you know, 
he killed a Jake the, the day before. And then I, we didn't know what else to do, but go back and sit in the same blind again. And we sat there in the same blind for four hours the next morning on a Saturday. And I ended up shooting a Jake, um, the next morning. And so we, we learned to hunt together, but that's good and bad because the only thing I know to do is just deer hunt him. Just, you know, sit in the tree and wait. And, uh, it took me a long time and I, and I, I became buddies with a couple guys that, that were just really good turkey hunters and, and showed me a different way to, you know, to run and gun and, and get more aggressive. And it's, it's a much more fun method of turkey hunting, I think, than, um, I'm going to go sit back on the, the West field and just see what happens and wait, you know, I'd, I'd much rather have turkeys and get them lined up. So anyway, I've, I've, uh, really come to enjoy turkey hunting, especially here in the mountains around Boone, North Carolina, where we live. It's, a it's a beautiful country. Springtime's a beautiful time of year up here and we really have some good hunts. And so I've, Turkey and deer are neck and neck. You know, in the fall, you asked me, I'd say, oh, deer hunting for sure. But, um, you know, and and, and I, I really enjoy going back to the Midwest to deer hunt. Um, I honestly, this year in North Carolina, I haven't even deer hunted here at all. And I might not at all. There's just a lot going on here at the house. And um, um, I, I'm not sure I'll, I'll get to hunt too much here in North Carolina, but a Midwest deer hunt or a mountain turkey hunt are my two tops for sure. That's, uh, that's cool. I, you know, I, I will say that I, I'm, I'm still waiting to put both a deer and a turkey in the freezer, but um, there's nothing like the sound of that, that first gobble in the spring, man. Oh, man. When you hear that in the middle of the woods. It's just, it just moves you. Yeah. That's cool. Uh, um, so is it the same for painting them or do you, are you uh, neck and neck painting turkeys and, and deer, or do you have a, a favorite in that? in that space yeah I, I really tend to go seasonal with that as well i really love to paint deer and elk in the fall um i really love to paint elk you know I, I i don't have a lot of experience with elk but i've hunted them a couple times and they actually have a a herd here in western north carolina that you can go and photograph and i've spent some time photographing them um elk naturally have a really cool um, anatomy, you know, their, their, their rack is phenomenal. There's a lot of really great things about an elk that are fun to paint. Um, and the the habitat that they live in lends itself to really, uh, a different color palette and some really beautiful scenic stuff. I really love to paint turkeys. They're they're They can be a challenge to paint simply because, you know, when you're painting fur, it's easy to abstract that and take some artistic license there, or you can paint entire, you know, parts of an animal's coat in one or two brush strokes. But with Turkey Man, you've pretty much got to paint every feather. There's just no way around it. You know, you've got to, you've got to really get in there and, and, and give the bird the detail that it, it deserves. There's no way to abstract a turkey. And so <clears throat> I enjoy painting them but they, they do present more of a challenge. They're a little bit more time consuming. I feel like. Okay. But after college, um, I worked for the national wild Turkey Federation as a graphic designer and illustrator for seven years. So I have a, 
a lot of background with with the turkeys and painting turkeys and and all that. So I don't think that'll ever go away. All right. Um, so, and I understand that you showed an affinity for art at a young age. Uh, where did that, where did the talent come from? Was it, are your parents artistic or is it just something that, you know, happened? It just happened, man. It, it was just, you know, a lot of it is a God given ability. Um, and then a lot of it is learned, you know, and I tell people a lot, like they're, it, it's not all that different from a sport. I don't feel like there, there's a certain amount of just natural ability but there's a certain amount of dedication and persistence and, and, and commitment to a craft that goes into it, just like an athlete. And sure. We see people, we see athletes that ride on talent a lot and we see a lot of talented people fail every single day. And it's gotta be a, a, a blend of both. Um, I, I, this is my opinion of it. Um, the other thing is, you know, I, I, like I said, my dad was a farmer. My mom was a postmaster. There really isn't any artistic ability in my family. Um, I had some really good, I had a really good high school art teacher and some people that, that, that poured into me when I was younger in high school. But as far as the natural part of it, I've always been able to understand geometry and math and how things fit together um, how, how something should, should look or cast a shadow. I've understood perspective. That's kind of been a natural bent of mine and that's helped, but man, I, I've had to learn a ton and I've still got a ton to learn about it. You know, there's a lot of, you could paint white tailed deer every day for the rest of your life and, and not feel like you get it at the end. You know, it's just a constant pursuit of, of, trying to do better and, and more importantly, ruthlessly evaluating what you did right and wrong and, and being able to take that as well. So. Well, that's, that's certainly interesting. I, you know, I never, I never really think about the work that has to go into painting. I always think, you know, people who paint, I know that I can't draw or paint, although when I'm an, I'm an engineer, right? So I get the spatial, yeah. analysis stuff. I understand where things fit in space. And so I'm always a little surprised that I don't have, you know, my grandpa was a sign painter and I, I struggle with uh, stick figures, right? So yes. Um, but that's what it is, right? So I, I do math. and, and Well, and I remember too, uh, so I worked full time for the Turkey Federation and I would paint nights and weekends. <clears throat> and I distinctly remember two for sure and maybe three paintings where I literally, I got to the middle of them and it was like a mental brick wall. And I remember just, like the voice in my head telling me, man, this sucks. Like, what are you doing, man? You're wasting your time. Like just stop. And I remember, um, it was weird, man. It was like a, it was like a, like a brick wall. I would hit halfway through these couple of early paintings. And I remember pushing through and making myself finish it, even if it sucked because I wanted the, the mental victory of doing that. And I, for some reason, I'll, I'll never forget that those early hurdles i don't know why it was those two or three paintings but it was pretty distinct well i think we're all better for you having stuck with it so um thanks for that um i didn't i didn't realize until i started hunting that um hunting really drives uh, on the ground conservation work right and you yeah. are really passionate about that um your work is you know like 
like I mentioned before, your work has uh, raised over a million dollars for conservation organizations. So uh, were your parents, you know, um, as, as farmers, you know, were they conservationists or was it more like, you know, contemporary agriculture? I don't, I don't know when the landscape really shifted uh, towards, you know, um, industrial ag, if you will. Yeah. I mean, my dad was, was always more the family farmer, but my dad would put tillable on anything. <laughs> he, he definitely was in it, you know, and he had to support family, you know, make a living. Sure. So, um, really, when I was growing up, uh, so I was born in 82, I'm 38, and it wasn't really until the mid-90s that I remember a conservation push. Um, we, like I said, we, we learned to turkey hunt about the same time. And, you know, what you do when you turkey hunt is you just go to the Turkey Federation banquet at the, at the VFW hall in town. And I remember that was just, it was more of a social thing. Guys were learning to turkey hunt and became passionate about turkey hunting. And they, they, they caught on to the fact real quick that like, hey, these, these birds weren't here when we were growing, when we were growing up. And if we don't do something about it, they might not be here in 10 or 15 years they might not be here when our kids are growing up and so that really i think that really caught on with a lot of people and so you know i remember from the time i was 12 years old i would always go to the the turkey federation banquet i didn't know as much about the mission of it you know i was mainly like trying to learn how to turkey call so I went to the banquet so I could get Turkey Call magazine and learn. You know, I, I really just, <laughs> to be honest with you, I just wanted to kill turkeys is what I wanted. It was more selfish ambition than anything. But then as you get older, you realize, hey, this <clears throat> this takes some work, you know. And a lot of the turkeys that, that got there came in by trap and transfer. And that's not cheap. It requires manpower and, you know, and and you, you when you work for an organization like the Turkey Federation, you start to learn how deep the rabbit hole goes with state grants and initiatives. And you have to, you know, one of the things that, that played out in, in my family's life is you have to balance conservation and feeding the country, you know, so it's easy to enroll your whole farm in, in, in you know, a conservation program. But a lot of times you have to incentivize farmers to do that. And that's a that gets on a big, big time federal scale. <clears throat> and but most of the actual just nitty gritty boots on the ground conservation, habitat work and restoration comes from these groups and um, and they need money. And so one of the, the most successful ways that they've found out how to found to do it is by selling art and. Um, you know, like we were talking earlier, it helps people to uh, display their, their hobbies and their passion indoors and share that with other people. Um, it, it has some functionality and that it, it actually fills a space on the wall uh, and, and helps them decorate their home. Um, there's a pretty healthy margin in their profit margin for those companies, you know, because they're producing the art themselves rather than outsourcing a lot of it. So, Art has been a great way to raise money for for a lot of years for conservation. Awesome. 
Um, so, and, you know, obviously your hunting, your background in the farm and conservation has, you know, this has influenced your art. How, how else has hunting influenced your life? Um, are there lessons that you can abstract from being in the field, uh, and turn that into something that you're going to maybe teach, uh, Rhett or, or Brooklyn? Yeah. You know, board. man, you know, First of all, one of the big things is hunting is a part of my career. You know, I, I work in the outdoor industry. Um, I still help some big companies in the industry with their marketing and advertising. So we'll get that out of the way and then just sweep that aside. So, you know, I, I right. live and work in it every day. But the more important thing is my deepest friendships and relationships are all centered around it. And it is one of the hardest things to explain to somebody that, that hasn't done it or ever experienced it. Um, some of the camaraderie, the, the time that you have, the bonding time, um, it's just real hard to experience, which is why it's important to get people in the outdoors because until they do experience it, it's tough. Um, but the deepest friendships and relationships that I have, uh, have all have, have mainly come from hunting and the, the, the closest fondest memories I have with my dad, my own dad um, have come from, from hunting and fishing. And I just can't imagine it being any other way with my own son and maybe daughter too, you know? Uh, so I really, I re- it's a big, it's a big part of my life. It, it's how I decompress from work. Um, it is my work, which is kind of a double-edged sword, I guess. But um, it's it's really just been an integral part of my life for, for a long time. And and with everything going on in our life now, we've got two young kids and everything that's going on with Kim. Um, I've had to punt a lot of, of, of hunting, a lot of opportunities. But I'm counting on when things get back to normal. The kids grow up a little bit. Rhett comes more of age it's going to be uh, an even more part important part as, as we go on. So. Sure. Yeah. You know, and you said a couple things there. Um, when I started, I told you I was 30, uh, I guess I was 36 mm-hmm. and I started dove hunting with a guy that I met at the Coast Guard Academy. His name is Tom Warren. He had been asking me to, to dove hunt with him for 17 years before I said yes. Holy cow. And when I finally said yes, I was like, man, did you screw up? Because for you missed out on 17 years worth of, you know, there was like an instantaneous bond between folks that I'd never met just because they were all out. We were all out just going to, to hunt, right? Like, and it's, there's this mentality that just you, you can't explain until you do it. Yeah. Right. So it's, it, you, you know, you touched on that. And for me, it's, you know, Tom has been a, a a good friend for 20 years. And, um, so I was really, you know, fortunate that he didn't give up on me. Um, you know, and the other thing you say there is, you know, you're, you're talking about, you know, you're gonna have to punt until your, your, your son and daughter are a little older. And I, I realized it's starting to hunt, you know, when my, my newborn, you know, two months later comes around, it's like, that's not the time to try to be spending a bunch of time <laughs> in the woods. Right. Yeah. And, you know, and, um, so this is, this is kind of like a good, a good segue into talking about, um, you know, managing expectations because, um, you know, I, I, like I said, I started two months before my son was born hunting 
And as a first generation hunter, I'm floored by this uh, complex landscape of emotions, right? Mm-hmm. I don't want to get you know too touchy feely here, but it, you know, it, it, when you take life, there's all these things that you have to you wind up thinking about. It's inevitable, it seems. You're right, and it's heavy stuff when you wade through all these things that come along with it. And you know, but it's such a small part of hunting in terms of time, right? It's 99% of the time you're in some sort of thoughtful preparation or problem solving and observation, which mm-hmm. you know that part of it really appeals to me. Right. And then, so there's this whole other set of emotions that come with creating life. And of all the things that you experience as a new dad, for me, the most surprising for me is how much I actually love being a dad. Right. I was on the fence for a lot of years before we got, you know, pregnant and had our son. Right. And so I really enjoy spending time with Slater and I really hope that um, Slater and I have stuff in common as he grows up, mostly so we can hang out. I mean, he's a fun yeah. kid. And, you know, so I know that I'm going to share this passion. I'm going to want to share this passion with him um, when he's old enough to start learning. We've already started crabbing. You know, we tried fishing when he was like two and a half. And that was a little, you know, he wasn't there yet in terms of you know, patience or, you know, dexterity or whatever. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to force this on him, right? I, I can see it be traumatic if you say, hey, kid, we're going to go, you know, I we're going to shoot some squirrels or something. Right. So if he's going to hunt, I want him to want to hunt. If he doesn't, you know, I'm not going to be disappointed in him, but I will be disappointed because I foresee myself hunting as long as I'm able, which means that, you know, if he's not hunting, then we're going to just wind up spending less time together. Right. So have you thought about this? Do you think about handing down this tradition to your, to your, your children? It sounds like you do. Rhett is wired exactly like me. And so I look at that kid and he already is competitive and puts a ton of pressure on himself. So what I've decided to do with Rhett is just make it completely fun. You know, you can bait here in North Carolina, which you can down there too. Um, So, I mean, we started when he was two and he, he really just loved riding on the four wheeler and throwing corn out, (laughs) you know, and throwing corn up in the air. And, you know, of course he's, two-year-old so he tries to eat it and uh you know all that and i i have 100 percent told myself i'm not going to put pressure on the kid every time we hit the woods it's going to be fun and when we get to the point where it's a sit down shut up and sit still we'll know it's right you know and and honestly he's probably going to be there before i'm ready for him to be there anyway just because he, he he's um He's hard on himself and he wants to get stuff right and he wants to do it. And I've just really told myself that we're going to keep it fun and, and, and we'll, we'll let it advance, um, sort of naturally. No, I do. I do really try to teach him, um, and, and, and pour some wisdom into him as we go. You know, it's not like we're just bumbling around in the woods as we go. I'll explain to him what a deer track is and this and that and the other, um, but, you know, I, I feel like it'll it'll come pretty naturally to him. Um, but the, the biggest thing is I, I don't want, you know, I want him to have good experiences shooting. You know, I want him to start with a BB gun and we'll have fun there and then we'll go to a 22. I'm not about to lay the kid across a five-gallon bucket with a 12-gauge and, you know, let him wear himself out. And then he develops a flinch and stuff like that. I'll, I want him to have fun and, 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 and ease into it naturally. Um, but, you know, speaking into your situation a little bit, like 
I really loved that my dad, um, he didn't like, he knew how to hunt and gun hunt and this and that and the other, but he didn't know how to turkey hunt. I was 12 years old and he didn't know how to turkey hunt. Um, I was 12 years old and he didn't know how to shoot a bow and we got bows together. And then my brother got a bow, you know? And so it was, it was really fun for me to, to learn with him, you know? And so I, I don't think, you know, if I was you, I wouldn't back down from that at all. Being able to say like, Hey, I, I don't know the answer, but Hey dude, let's go figure it out together, you know, and let's see what we can do. And, and, um, I, th- I feel like you'll be great at it. I, I, I agree with you. I, you know, just by necessity, I think I'm going to have to learn some stuff at the same time as, as later in the event that he wants to learn it. And it doesn't matter whether it's hunting or whatever, you know, there's, there's so many things that you can learn and, you know, that I, Google, right? That's great. You have genius <laughs> connection to all the world's information, and yet we watch, you know, turkey hunting videos. Yeah. Um, <laughs> um, you know, so your son, you see, your son is wired like you, and I guess it's probably a little early, right, to tell with Brooklyn if she's only a year old, but yeah. um, has, uh, has Rhett demonstrated any kind of artistic? Uh, proclivities has he picked up a paintbrush yet or you know and if he doesn't are you going to be disappointed in that no man i've um kim and i were talking about it a few weeks ago and you know the the one thing that i want to instill in Rhett, other than you know just morals and integrity and all that kind of stuff but i want him to know that we live in a country where you can choose to do anything you want to do And if you're the best at it, you can be massively successful. You can pick the most random. I mean, we have professional YouTubers of all things. You know, I mean, Joe Rogan just got paid on his podcast. You know, and and dude, ten years ago that didn't even exist. And so, man, if if you go at something and and you determine that you're going to hone your craft and you're going to work hard and you're going to be the best at it. I don't care if it's laying carpet. I'm just looking around the room and I see carpet. So dude, if you're going to be the best guy at laying carpet in the country, you're going to be very successful and you'll, you'll figure out a way. So I won't, I won't be disappointed at all if he's not an artist. Um, what I do want him to be is I want him to, to strive to be the best at whatever he does and, and to be really good at that. And if, if I can instill that in him, I'll be massively proud and relieved and overjoyed far beyond teaching him how to, how to paint. Um, you know, and, but it, you know, if he's got that bent, he, he showed a little bit of interest in it. You know, he likes to, to draw and, and, and paint, but he, um, he gets frustrated if the deer doesn't look like what he wants it to look like, you know, and he's only four and that, that's me, and him, you know, for sure. And so, you know, we'll, we'll kind of figure all that stuff out as we go. But he loves to play sports. He loves to be outside. And, you know, I want to win, I want to instill that in him. I don't want to stick him in front of a video game this this early. So. Sure. No, I, I feel bad every time we spend more than 15 or 20 minutes watching TV with, with Slater. Um, you know, and it's, it's funny because we do, um, we do crafts, you know, we, he, he doesn't, he, he draws and he colors and stuff, but we, we do crafts together. We have dadder day yeah. and, um, you know, we make, uh, belt ornaments from Hobby Lobby and stuff. And it's, yeah. you know, 
it's stuff that like you know in a, in a hyper masculine world that you know some of us might inhabit where they're like oh that's you know whatever um it's it's really fun you know it's fun just spending time with my kid and just watch how creative i love watching him do stuff where he has no expectation for what it is he's supposed to do and what it looks like to be right or wrong because yeah. it's just so surprising right that natural curiosity is amazing and it sounds like you're doing a great job with your kids and, and um, you got the right mindset, right? You know, and it, it's almost, I think it's almost cliche to say like, I want to do the best at what he does, but you're absolutely right. You know, you're, it doesn't matter what you do. If you're really good at it, mm-hmm. you can, you can, you can slay. And it's, it's just, we are really lucky and there's, there's absolutely no, um, nothing that you're saying that I can possibly disagree with. So thank you for that insight. Um, I want to just hit a few more things before we wrap up. I, you know, you knew this was coming, but tell me, uh, hit me with a dad joke. Oh, man, I read that right before I got on podcast. I'm, like, I'm going to have to Google something. I, I, I like to say that every joke that I say at this point is a dad joke. So that's my dad joke. Man, I don't. Can I tell you something my dad did that I thought was hilarious? That's that's a perfect. That's uh, let's do it. My dad, my dad is my dad. We all kind of have like a smart ass sense of humor. My dad, my brother, and me, and um, it was actually kind of cruel but hilarious at the same time. But um, uh, my dad was always like praying, playing practical jokes, and and you know all kinds of stuff on the farm. And uh, my cousin really wanted a some kind of bracelet or something like that for Christmas. And man, looking back, I was probably eight and she was probably, no, nah, I'd have been older, like 10 and six, something like that. And she wanted the bracelet. And my dad snuck out when nobody was looking and cut a pig's tail off and put it in a box in the bracelet box. <laughs> And she opened it. And I mean, we're all farm people, you know, so it's not that morbid. But um, put it in a bracelet box and my cousin opened it and it was a big deal. And she thought that that was her, her bracelet. My dad would do stuff like that all the time, like just playing jokes on us all the time. But uh, I, I will assume that the, the pig was deceased. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was. Um I could see but, that. Oh, man. My, my dad always had a pretty hilarious sense of humor like that. I mean, unless you're on the other end of that humor and then it was always rough. <laughs> no, she, she, I assume your cousin is now um, vegetarian and doesn't wear jewelry. Oh, it, was, it was rough, dude. It was one of those that like went way worse than you thought it would. You know, like it ended in tears at Christmas, but you know. Wow. But I, I appreciate the effort. Um, the last question, the, la- the last question I want to add joke right there. <laughs> uh, thank you for trying. Uh, the, the last, <laughs> the last question I want to talk, I, I want to ask you, and this is, this is very selfish, but who do you think has a, a great story about both hunting and fatherhood that would, that you would want to hear from in, in the hot seat, uh, on this podcast? Hmm. You know, there's a buddy of mine, Matt Drury, that uh, you've probably heard of the Drury's if you've Googled around. Um, Drury Outdoors? Drury Outdoors. Yeah. Yeah, Matt, I've heard of them. Um, 
I bet Matt would have some interesting stories, man, because like his dad is is Terry. And I mean, th- those guys are uber celebrities in the in the hunting world. But what a lot of people don't realize is like, man, Terry's owned a construction company for years. Like he's a he's a hardworking dude. And people think that like he just deer hunts for a living, but he doesn't. And so I bet I bet Matt would have some good stories like behind the scenes of of a dad building a business from scratch and and making his way and hunting and being a dad and all that kind of stuff. He yeah, that's a great I'll think of some other ones too. Um, you know, one of the one of the the things that that I've experienced as I've gotten older is a lot of guys like like your age that are like my age that are hunting for the first time who didn't have dads that hunted or whose dads didn't hunt. I also have buddies of mine who hunt and their dad didn't hunt and now they're trying to get their dad into hunting. So, um you know, there's, there's a lot of, you know, interesting stuff like that. And I, I really, it's, it's an interesting thing because w- like when I hunt with my buddies, we all kind of grew up with it. And, you know, like if I call in a turkey, I know that, that, you know, Joe's going to shoot him when he, when he needs shot, you know, but some of these guys that have never hunted before, they're like an 11 year old boy in a grown man's body. And so from a hunting IQ standpoint, they really don't know, but you just assume like, Oh man, like Nate's going to kill him any second now. And Nate doesn't know when to shoot, you know, because, because of that. And um, it, it's been really cool and and fun for them to learn and, and to see that play out too. So it's, it's not always the, uh, you know, it's not always like my story where I grew up and dad taught me to hunt. There's a lot of, a lot of variations of that that go on. Sure. I like that concept of, uh, hunting IQ. I, I got really excited over Thanksgiving. I killed my first pair of squirrels on public land and, and I was very proud of that. And I feel like, you know, a six-year-old, um, might typically kill a pair of squirrels and be very excited about it. So I think I have the hunting IQ equivalent of a six-year-old. Is there a lot of uh, down there? Uh, we have the national, uh, Francis Mary national forest. I uh, can be in the forest in about 20, 25 minutes and it's 275,000 wow. acres. It's not huge, yeah. um, but it's, you know, it's close to home. Um, yeah. you know, and I see a lot of sign. I see a ton of sign deer, hogs, turkeys. Um, I've seen otter, um, and, and, uh, beaver sign in there, but I, you know, it's very rare that I actually see live game, but also in season, right? So I normally see turkeys when I'm hunting deer. I see deer when I'm hunting turkeys. My first turkey that I saw, um, I had a bead on it uh, while I was hunting it, and uh, it got bumped by two does. And I'm like, this has got to be, you know, the the Shangri-La of public land hunting. And I have not seen a deer um, when I'm not in the truck since I saw a, you know, a lone boar uh, from the truck just the other day right so it's never it's never at an opportune time that i'm seeing these things which is pretty frustrating but also i love just being outside right just walking 10 miles a day uh, carrying a shotgun right or a rifle or whatever you're doing um, it's really nice uh, the other thing here is that your buddy 
uh, Matt Drury, what it sounds like and what I'm, you know, one of the things that I'm really picking up on and, and why I'm so interested in the stories of folks that either grew up hunting or, you know, are hunters and dads and, and have kids is a lot of the passions that I'm seeing are, you know, they start at a young age and it's never like a full-time deal. Right. But, mm -hmm. you know, folks are, they're crazy passionate about the stuff that they do as concerns hunting, right? You know, if you run a construction company, I mean, I just work an office job, but here I am, I'm sitting in my wife's closet and we're talking about hunting and I'm trying to launch a podcast. I'm a three-year-old running around the house, but it's like something that I feel moved to do. And, you know, to say that he's an Uber celebrity in the outdoors arena, like that's, that's kind of what I'm really after, right? Like these people have these crazy good stories about just how they get brought up in this and, and how it, it, there's just something different. Mm -hmm. about these types of people that I'm, that I'm, that just is fascinating to me. Um, and so I'm, I'm, I'm really glad that you brought that up. I'll, you know, maybe I'll ask you to put me in touch with Matt yeah, sometime in the future, but thank you for that. Um, so I want to, uh, we're just at about an hour here. I, I want to say, you know, one last time, your art is incredible. Um, tell the listeners where they can see more of it and how they can support you. I know that, uh, you know, we were talking about how these um, outdoor expositions and whatnot, they're kind of falling off with COVID. How can people yeah. get to you and support you? Well, um, my website, ryankirbyart.com. Um, we have uh, canvas and paper prints and originals there for sale and some apparel too. And then follow me on Instagram at ryankirbyart. So most I'm, I'm partial to Instagram and most of my good stuff goes there first. So great. Um, like I said, we're going to be launching this with web content, uh, right after the turn of the new year. Uh, I've got a profile of you and your work. It's going to be at huntingfatherhood.com backslash profiles. I will make sure that I link to your website and your Instagram handle, both in the show notes and there at that, uh, that profile. Um, and that's all for this episode, Ryan. Thanks for sharing. I'm really honored. I, I wasn't joking when I said, I feel like I got lucky to get you on here. And it's been great talking to you, man. I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate it, Brandon. I, I wish you the best, man. You've got some, it, I think it's really, I just think it, I guess honorable is the the first word that comes to mind um, to have the humility and the desire that you do to, to not only to, to take on hunting this late, you know, quote unquote late in life, but to want to get your son into it as well. Like it, it takes a lot of humility and a lot of, uh, uh, it's just an honorable thing what you're doing, man. So keep I, it I appreciate that. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Hunting Fatherhood. I hope you enjoyed it. I'd love to hear from you. Leave a review wherever you download your podcasts. Head over to huntingfatherhood.com backslash support to see all the ways you can help us out from telling your friends to contributing with Venmo, PayPal, and Buy Me a Coffee. If you want to share your story or recommend someone else to share theirs on Hunting Fatherhood, tell us in the reviews or send an email to stories at huntingfatherhood.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you tune in to the next episode.